at uh, Two Kings together, I just wanted to say a word about that 4th of December, uh, the family Christmas carols. Um, my wife Amy and I are going to come and run that this uh, that day. Uh, I've got a friend of mine called Big Red, a puppet, who's going to be coming. And uh, it's going to be a great opportunity for us to invite people to come along. Uh, there's a whole heap of uh, non-church kids that are coming to Jitterbugs uh, that we're encouraging to come along. Uh, we'll invite kids that are, and families that have come to Kids Holiday Club and uh, other people. So I just really want to encourage you to, to get behind. It's a great opportunity for us to share Jesus. Uh, so particularly if you, if you know families with kids in preschool or primary school, uh, that's kind of the, the main uh, group that we'll be aiming for. Uh, it'll be a great thing to uh, encourage them to, uh, to come along. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to that in a couple of weeks. Uh, how about I'll say a little prayer for us again and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get started. Yeah, Heavenly Father, again, we give you great thanks uh, that we can come together to uh, look at your word now. And uh, Father, pray, help us to uh, leave aside any distractions, uh, but to focus on your word to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, given my um, other responsibilities at church, I don't often uh, preach in, uh, in morning church. Um, and uh, I must admit, uh, sorry, usually like maybe about once a term, and uh, I must admit I I feel a little bit bad uh, preaching this morning. Uh, it feels like in our Two Kings series we've had bad king after bad king and uh, other preachers, they've done a great job uh, leading us through God's word. But we finally get to King Hezekiah, the good king. And where's Josh? He's on holiday. <laughs> and so I have the great privilege of coming in and then sharing this uh, really encouraging word as we look at the good king Hezekiah. Uh, now, it is also quite a long passage, though, we have, so we have four chapters that we're going to cover today. Uh, we won't be able to look at all of it in detail. We'll spend most of our time on chapters 18 and 19, uh, but then at the end, I'll just say something very briefly about chapters 20 and 21, just to help us uh, understand the book as a whole. All right, well, let's get started. So we'll look, so chapter 8, uh, sorry, chapter 18, verse 1, uh, we meet the new king, Hezekiah. Uh, and then verse 3, look there, verse 3, uh, Hezekiah the king, he did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. Uh, a little bit sad, but we're surprised, aren't we? Now we have a king, a leader of God's people who does what is right. Uh, and you can see what he does. Well, verse 4, he tries to remove idolatry in the land of Israel. Uh, he removed the high places. He shattered the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah poles. Uh, it's important to note that he removed the high places. I mean, because there have been good kings, particularly in the south in Judah already. Uh, but Hezekiah is the first to remove the high places, the sort of places of idolatry uh, outside of Jerusalem. Uh, you can also see in verse 4, he broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made. Uh, that's from Numbers 21. You might remember the story. There were snakes attacking God's people. And uh, Moses made a bronze snake, lifted it up on a pole. And if people looked to the snake, they would be healed. Uh, well, it seems that many years on, this bronze snake had become a snare to God's people. They'd started to uh, burn incense to it. And so good King Hezekiah, well, he broke up the bronze snake. And why did he do all these things? Well, look there, verse 5 because Hezekiah trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Uh, and it's just really encouraging, isn't it? Isn't it encouraging to come and read of a king, a leader of God's people, who is trying to do the right thing, 
uh, who is trusting in the Lord God. But as is uh, so often the case in the Bible and so often in history, uh, genuine faith is often shown in the face of oppression. Uh, And that's the situation here. The oppression comes uh, from the Assyrians. Now, Assyria was a foreign nation, and that was the superpower of the day, right? They were the ones who were in charge. They had the biggest army. In fact, we met them last week when they wiped out, remember, the the northern part of Israel. And so the capital city of Samaria, the the northern part, had been captured. And uh, you can see that actually reminded for us in verses 9 through to verse 12. So the Assyrians now have their eyes set on the southern part of Israel, so the tribe of Judah, and particularly the city of Jerusalem. Why is that? Well, if you look back up at verse 7, right, verse 7, he, King Hezekiah, he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So obviously, king of Assyria is not happy about this. So what does he do? Well, verse 13, where we started our reading, uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So the last remaining city is Jerusalem, right? The last stronghold for the tribe of Judah. That's where Hezekiah uh, is. And the king of Assyria, well, now he has his sights set on capturing this city as well. So what does Hezekiah do? Well, it's a little bit of a surprise, actually, isn't it? For good King Hezekiah, he goes to the king of Assyria and says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I've done the wrong thing. Whatever you want, I'll take, I'll give you, right? And so he strips the gold off the the doors of the temple. He gives him all his silver, right? Reminder, King Hezekiah, he is good and faithful, but, but not perfect, right? Still a, still a work in progress. But in the end, it doesn't work, right? The Assyrians take what King Hezekiah gives him but they still bring their massive army to come and wipe out the city of Jerusalem. Uh, And that brings us kind of to the main um, situation that lies behind these chapters. Uh, I've got a little picture just to help us understand. I can do it up here, Oliver, I think. All right, so I've got here, I've got the city of Jerusalem, uh, and it was a city built for defense, right? You can see it's got sort of walls all around it. So that's where King Hezekiah, and he has soldiers with him, the last stronghold for the tribe of Judah, but outside is the Assyrian army, okay? Right, they far outnumber, uh, outpower uh, the soldiers in the city, right? So they've surrounded uh, there. Uh, And it seems that the king of Assyria is not with them, uh, but instead he has this little representative, right? Here we go, called the Rabshaka, right? And uh, he's representing the king and the Assyrian army. And so he calls for King Hezekiah, and uh, Hezekiah sends out three officials, right? They come out to meet, and uh, they, uh, well, we read their names before, right? Three officials who came out. And so what we see in chapter 18 is this kind of series of speeches from the Rabshaka, uh, oh, hang on, to the officials, there you go, uh, who are representing King Hezekiah. And uh, so the Rabshaka, he begins his, uh, his speech, and uh, it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? He says, you guys have got no hope, right? There is no one who can help you. Egypt can't help you. And he says, don't expect any help from your God. Right, you may as well give up now. 
But what happens is the Rabshaka, he's been speaking in the language of Hebrew and uh, the officials, they say to him, look, can you not speak in Hebrew, right? Because that's the language that the people in the city can understand. Can you please speak Aramaic instead, right? A different language that the officials understand, but not the people uh, in the city. But have a look at how Rabshaka replies, verse 27. He says, uh, the Rabshaka said to him, has my master set me only to your master and to you to speak these words? Hasn't he also sent me to the men who sit on the wall, destined with you to eat their own excrement and drink, drink their own urine? Uh, it's, it's a pretty confronting picture, isn't it, right? Uh, but that was the reality of the situation. Uh, the Assyrian army, rather than go and try and attack Jerusalem with its walls, what they would do is they just surround it and basically starve the people in the city. So it's a pretty desperate situation for the people in Jerusalem. Uh, but the Rabshaka, he begins his second speech. He specifically chooses to speak in Hebrew, right? And he calls out loudly uh, to the people in the wall and uh, begins his sort of second speech, which in many ways is the same as the first, right? He says, you've got no hope, right? Don't trust Hezekiah. He won't be able to save you. Don't trust in your God because he won't be able to save you either. You may as well just give up now. Uh, and in fact, he gives them this offer of peace. So you look there, verse 31. Uh, he says, uh, don't listen to Hezekiah. For this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and surrender to me. Then every one of you may eat from his own vine and his own fig tree and everyone may drink water from his own cistern, right? Sounds like a pretty good offer, certainly better than, well, excrement and urine, right? Sounds like a pretty good offer of peace. But there is a cost, right? And that's what we see in verse 32. He says, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, See, for Hezekiah and his people, if they surrender, then they will be taken away, away from Jerusalem. And that's a big problem because in the Old Testament, Jerusalem, this was the place that God had said he would establish his name. And so to give up on Jerusalem is to give up on God. And so they really have this ultimatum. You can live in peace and abundance but give up on your God. Or you can keep trusting your so-called God, but you will die, right? That is what he is saying. And you can see that in his final challenge in verse 35. He says, who among all the gods of the lands has delivered his land from my power? So will the Lord deliver Jerusalem? And obviously for the Rabshakeh, he believes the answer is no, right? The Lord cannot and will not deliver Jerusalem from the hand of the Assyrians. So what does King Hezekiah do? He's inside the city in Jerusalem. What does he do at this point? He can see the threat of the Assyrian army. Well, that's actually really encouraging. <laughs> For the leader of God's people, he turns to God, right? He seeks out the prophet Isaiah, right? The one who wrote the book of Isaiah. He's the prophet of the day. And he goes to the prophet Isaiah and he says, I need help. And uh, well, God through Isaiah says, 
Well, the king of Assyria, the one who is threatening you, he will go back to his hometown of Nineveh and he will die. So that's the promise that God makes. But before the king of Assyria makes it back to Nineveh, there's one last threat, right? This one doesn't come from the Rabshakeh, it comes from the king of Assyria himself. Uh, he writes a letter and he sends it by messengers to the king of Jerusalem, right? And so he, well, writes this letter, a uh, threatening letter. Uh, in many ways, it's the same as before, right? Give up, you're going to lose, you can't win, right? But he goes a little bit further. Look there at verse 10, right? This is what the letter says. Okay, say this to Hezekiah, king of Judah, right? This is the message. This is uh, chapter 19, verse 10. Uh, Don't let your God, whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, don't trust your God. And it really is the height of human arrogance, isn't it? I mean, here we have a human, right? The king of Assyria. He has a powerful army, yes. But he's saying to the people of God, who know the living God who made everything, don't trust the words that he speaks. Don't rely on him. Instead, well, look at who surrounds you. Look at this human army that surrounds you. Right? It's a very arrogant and bold thing for the king of Assyria to say. So what does the king of, sorry, king of Judah, right? King Hezekiah, he gets this threatening letter, right, from his enemy. What does he do? Well, again, it's, it's, it's really encouraging, right? He turns to the Lord. He takes the letter to the temple, uh, he spreads it out and he prays to the Lord God, right? Uh, that's what we've got in verses 15 and following, the, the, um, the, the prayer of Hezekiah is recorded for us and it's, it's actually really encouraging, right? I think that the sort of the highlight of this chapter to see King Hezekiah, we see him acknowledge God is the one true God, we see him acknowledge that the the, the, um, the gods of the surrounding nations, they're just idols. And I think most encouraging is how he ends the prayer, the, the reason of why he prays, right? So let me, let me read it out to you. I'm going to read the prayer. So look down. So chapter 19, verse 15, right? Hezekiah is praying to the Lord. And this is, this is what he says. He says, Lord God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear the words that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, has sent to mock you, the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but made by human hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. Now, Lord our God, please save us from his hand, so that, right, here's the reason, this is the reason he's praying, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Right, isn't that encouraging, right, to see the leader of God's people come before God in prayer, 
right? And he acknowledges he is the God who, who is the one true God who made everything, right? And do you notice how the reason he prays? It's so that God would be glorified, so that everyone everywhere would know that Yahweh, the one true God, is king over all. Now, I don't know about you, like it is encouraging, but it, it's also a bit of a challenge, isn't it? I mean, at church, we've been thinking a lot about prayer and our gospel teams, and you might like to reflect a little bit about your prayers this week. Uh, how many have had their focus on the glory of God? It's an interesting thing to reflect on, isn't it? It's quite a, quite a challenge for all of us, <laughs> including myself. When, when you speak to God, when you pray, do you have that godly concern for the glory of God? Perhaps something you might like to remember as you pray uh, in the week to come. Well, coming back to two kings, right? Hezekiah, he's, he's given his uh, wonderful prayer. And uh, then from verse 20 and following, we see the response from the Lord, right? Comes through the prophet Isaiah. And uh, basically, God, well, says it's like a rebuke of the king of Assyria, right? He says, you human king, right? You think you're so good, so strong, so mighty, Will you not, right? In fact, everything that has happened has happened according to my plan and according to my will, right? So look there, verse 25, for example, right? This is the response of the, of God against the king of Assyria. He says, verse 25, have you not heard? I designed it long ago. I planned it in days gone by. I have now brought it to pass, and you have crushed fortified cities into piles of rubble. Right? Can you see what he's saying? What the king of Assyria, sorry, the king of Assyria has done is according to the will and plan of God. Right? This was part of God's judgment. Right? The king of Assyria, he thinks he's so powerful, but he's just an instrument in the hand of the true and living God. And now that God's plan has come to completion, what does he say? Look there, verse 28, the Lord says to the king of Assyria, well, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. I will make you go back the way you came. Right? It's this wonderful rebuke, isn't it? (laughs) For this human king who tried to stand against the living God. And so the episode finishes in verse 35. What happens is this vast Assyrian army, right, that's gathered around Jerusalem, right? You think about all the threats, all the arrogance, all the claims, look how big and strong and mighty we are. And then what happens? In one night, recorded in one verse... (laughs) the Lord shows his power, right? Look there, verse 35, that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, right? So for all the talk of this chapter, one night, the Assyrian army is devastated, right? And the king of Assyria heads back home. There's a little ending to the story. The king of Assyria, he goes back to his hometown of Nineveh. He's there worshipping his own God in the temple back in his hometown. And uh, what happens to him? 
well, his sons come and kill him. Uh, I think it's this wonderful example of, of poetic justice, don't you think? Right? This king of Assyria has said to Hezekiah, your God can't save you from my massive army. And what happens to that king? In the very act of worshipping his own God, he's killed by people in his own family. Right? Can you see that? That the false god of Assyria is not able to protect the king in the very act of worshipping from his own family. Right? I think a fitting end to the king of Assyria. But that brings us then to the end of chapter 19. And it's worth just pausing for a moment, having looked at the story, uh, just to uh, think a little about how it might encourage us. Uh, and I think it is a, a wonderful encouragement for us, right, in the face of such mockery, to see the true power of the God that we know. See, the reality is for us as Christians is that, well, people will mock us, right, in the same way the king of Assyria mocked King Hezekiah, Right? For us as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised when people mock us. We shouldn't be surprised when people make fun of us. But the encouragement of this chapter is no matter what people say, no matter what people say, you can be encouraged to know that our God is the one true God. He is the one who is glorious. He is the one who is mighty. Right? No matter what people say, He is the one who can be trusted. Now, as I said in the beginning, we've spent most of our time looking chapters 18 and 19. We still have chapters 20, 21. We're not going to look at them in the same detail, right? But I think helpful for me, if I just say a couple of things about those two chapters, just to help you understand the book of two kings, right? So we'll look at these two chapters uh, a lot more uh, speedily, um, but they're very important, in fact, in us understanding uh, particularly the events that will follow, right? So look there, chapter 20, very quickly, we'll look there, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 20, uh, it's kind of the, the rest of Hezekiah's life. Uh, he gets sick, Isaiah says to him, uh, you're going to die, Hezekiah says, well, I don't want to die. <laughs> so he prays, right? You see the prayer there in verse 3, but it is, I don't know, it just feels a little bit disappointing, right, for Hezekiah. I mean, we saw his wonderful prayer from before. Uh, he's sick, verse 3, he prays, basically says, look, God, I've been pretty good, can you get me better, right? No talk of the glory of God or anything like this. Uh, through the prophet Isaiah, God says, okay, you will get better, uh, but I think there's a little bit of a rebuke for Hezekiah, right? Look there, verse 6, this is the Lord speaking. He says, I will add 15 years to your life, Hezekiah. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. Why? Well, for my sake and for the sake of my servant, David. Well, in chapter 20, uh, we see a visit from people from Babylon uh, now, at this point in history, the um, nation of Babylon, the Babylonians, right, they're not particularly important. The Assyrians, they're the superpower, but they hear that King Hezekiah is sick, so very lovely. They come and send him a little gift and a, a get well card soon, right? And what does Hezekiah do? Well, he shows the Babylonians everything, right? Gives them the grand tour, shows them everything, right? But then the prophet Isaiah comes to Hezekiah 
and says, well, the Babylonians, who you've just shown everything, they're going to come back, right? They're going to come back and they're going to take away everything that you have shown them. And in fact, they will take away some of your descendants away to Babylon, right? And this kind of sets us up for the end of two kings, right? Later in history, the Babylonians, they overtake Assyria as the superpower and it's the Babylonians who come and wipe out Jerusalem, right? And we'll see that in coming weeks. But then we have this really interesting end to Hezekiah, right? Look there at verse 19, right? He's just heard the Babylonians are going to come and take everything, including some of Hezekiah's own descendants. And what does Hezekiah say? He says, verse 19, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security during my lifetime? Now, we've got to be a little bit careful. King Hezekiah is described as someone who remained faithful to God. But it's disappointing, isn't it? I mean, this is the king who just prayed, rescue us so that your name will be glorified. And here he's saying, well, as long as, you know, there's peace and safety in my own lifetime, who cares? what will happen in the generations that come. And it's a little bit of a disappointing end to King Hezekiah. But I think in this, is, it's hard not to see a little bit of a rebuke of our own culture, right? See, in our own time, in our own culture, well, our world really values comfort, does it not? Isn't that the most important thing, to have comfort and ease? And our world so easily values, well, number one, make sure you have a good retirement, you know, have a comfortable life, right? Make sure in your own lifetime there is peace and safety. I think it's very easy for us as Christians to take that on and to be zealous for the Lord earlier on in our life. But as we get older, well, that starts to wane, And we start to think, well, as long as things are, you know, comfortable for me in my lifetime, then, well, things things are okay. But hopefully you can see that that's that's a mistake. (laughs) Don't be content with just wanting comfortable life, right? For us as Christians, our, our goal should be to see the name of our God glorified, right? to see the gospel go out to all nations. Of course, we want to see that in our own generation. But for us as Christians, we should have that concern for the generations that will come after us until the return of the Lord. Think a little encouragement for us to make sure we keep thinking about what are the things that are important to us? What are the priorities that we have all through our life to make sure that for us as Christians, we have our eyes fixed on the glory of God. Well, coming back to Hezekiah, he does eventually die. His son Manasseh becomes king. That's who we read about in chapter 21. And after the greatest king, Hezekiah, well, we have the worst king in Manasseh. Sorry. The worst king in Manasseh. And he's really bad, right? Look at, just skim over verse 1 to 9. He basically undoes everything that his father Hezekiah does. 
He rebuilds the high places. He reestablishes the altars for Baal. He makes an Asherah. Uh, in, in verse 9, it says, Manasseh caused God's people to stray, so they did greater evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. That's a really terrible thing to happen, for God's people to be worse than the nations who came before them. But that's, that's what happened in the life of Manasseh, right? And so verses 10 to 15 is the promise of God's judgment upon Jerusalem and Judah. Right, so halfway through verse 13, this is the, the message of judgment from God. I will wipe Jerusalem clean as one wipes a bowl, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. Why? Well, verse 15, because they have done what is evil in my sight. And again, this really sets us up for the end of two kings, where we see the Babylonians return and the city of Jerusalem fall. Well, Manasseh dies, his son Amon becomes king. He only reigns for two years and he too is evil. Amon dies, his son Josiah comes, right? You see that at the very end of chapter 21 and Josiah was, well, I was going to say you've got to come back next week. <laughs> he was good, right? He was a good king. We're back to a good king, right? But come back next week, right? We're going to learn more about Josiah, right? But that brings us to the end, right? We've covered four chapters, lots to get through, right? But we started with good King Hezekiah, encouraging, right? Isn't that encouraging to see uh, a king who trusted in the Lord? Then a little bit sour, well, we ended with Manasseh, right? The worst king of all. Uh, but there's just, before we finish, just one thing I think is important to mention about Manasseh. Right, it's interesting, it's not mentioned here in 2 Kings, but in 2 Chronicles, right, which is the kind of parallel history of these times, uh, Manasseh was uh, taken captive, but have a look at what it says in chapter 33, right? Here we go, 2 Chronicles, chapter 33, verse 12 to 13. So when Manasseh was in distress, he sought the favour of Yahweh, his God, and earnestly humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. He prayed to him, so he heard his petition and granted his request and brought him back to Jerusalem to his kingdom. So Manasseh came to know that Yahweh is God. It's a wonderful illustration, isn't it, of God's grace, that Manasseh, <laughs> that he would know the grace of our God. And of course, for us as Christians, we know this truth so much more clearly. We know the wonderful good news of Jesus, right? That no matter what someone has done, if they turn to Jesus, they will be forgiven. Right? No matter what they have done, it Manasseh was he was pretty bad, right? But as Christians, we know that no matter what someone has done, if they turn to Jesus, they will be forgiven. Why? Well, because Jesus has taken the punishment we deserve on the cross. Isn't that good news? Isn't that the best news ever? Right? No matter what anyone has done, no matter what you have done, if you trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven. I think that's a great place to stop and give thanks to God. All right, let's join together and pray. Our Heavenly Father, 
We give you thanks for your wonderful grace to us in Jesus. Father, we thank you that we can meet together this morning to look at your word. We thank you for that wonderful encouragement of Hezekiah and his deep trust in you. And we pray that that would be true for us in whatever we face, no matter what people say, that we might trust in you, the true and living God. And Father, we thank you for that wonderful illustration of grace in the life of Manasseh. And Father, we pray that you would keep always before us a deep knowledge of your grace, that because of Jesus, we have that wonderful hope and promise that there is forgiveness in his name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.